Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special series of audio interviews for the film Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. My name is Michael Felsher. I'm the owner and operator of Red Shirt Pictures, and you're going to be listening to two interviews that I've conducted recently with the composer of the film, Mr. Stacy Weidelitz, and the associate producer, Mr. Robert Coster. Now, these interviews won't be taking the form of a regular audio commentary where we sit here and comment on the film as it goes by, although you will be watching the film as the interviews progress. These interviews were conducted independently and just were sort of a free-form conversation between myself and Mr. Weidelitz from his studio in Nashville, Tennessee, and Mr. Coster from his home in Los Angeles, California. Now, of course, Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge is a major focus of both of these interviews, but you'll also hear me ask questions about some of the other notable genre titles that both gentlemen have worked on over their careers, as well as how they got started in the business and what they're up to these days. So let's kick things off with my interview with Mr. Stacy Weidlitz, the composer of Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. And then afterwards, you'll hear from associate producer Robert Coster. So, Stacy, thank you very much for joining us today. And I just wanted to ask you, first of all, how you got started in the music industry. What kicked things off for you, so to speak? Well, I actually started fairly young. I started studying piano when I was in um, when I was about eight years old, and then um, really started thinking seriously about a career in music when I was about thirteen. Although at that time, it really, you know, my thoughts were I'll be a studio pianist or a jazz pianist or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, but then when I was about 15 or so, I joined a band, um, but it was a lounge band. It was piano, sax, bass, and drums. We played standards, you know, Girl from Ipanema and stuff like that. And we started getting hired to play clubs um, at, when I was 15. And I actually joined the Musicians Union in New York when I was 15. This is all I grew up on Long Island. So, um, uh, and I went to college for music at a, a liberal arts school that had a, a jazz teacher there that I wanted to study from, although I didn't end up studying with him. Um, that's a different story. But uh, I met a different jazz teacher, a guy named Lou Stein, and um, I also met a guy that worked at a little recording studio in Stamford, Connecticut. And I started doing um, little soundtracks for him for film strips and educational projects. And uh, this was when I was about 19. And uh, then Lou Stein also, besides taking lessons from him, he had a jazz workshop on Monday nights and I was writing music for that. And uh, in a conversation with Lou one time, he said, he told me that he had made a fortune writing jingles, which I didn't know. And uh, he, said, he said to me, you know, you're a good piano player, but you're a really good composer. You write music very easily um, and it's approachable. It, it's, it's, you know, and he said, if you ask me, that's your path in life, um, in music. And he said that, um, you won't have to tour, you'll make more money, you'll get more respect. And, and on the drive home, that's when it clicked. I was like, okay, that's the path. And, and that, about that time, I quit college because I was working and uh, still playing clubs, but doing these little score things. 
And I thought, what do I need the degree for? So I just continued to study privately in composition and jazz piano and went back to my old classical teacher. And the studio in Stanford expanded and we started doing better and better quality uh, work and for bigger and bigger uh, industrial clients like Pan Am and National Airlines. But then when I was 24, I was living with uh, a woman, Wendy Fraser, and she was a great singer. And her father was a television producer who gave us a shot at writing a theme for a new show that he was doing. Uh, but he said, I'm not giving it to you. He said, I, I have to like the theme. The star has to like it. Uh, my wife has to like it because she's co-producing and the syndicator has to like it. And we wrote something and everybody liked it. So um, six days later we were flying to LA from New York to um, lead the session and the show was the Richard Simmons show. And that show became a huge hit. And um, Wendy and I were talking about it we said, you know, we probably need to move to Los Angeles to capitalize on this, um, although I didn't really want to, but I realized it was the right move. And so about a year after the show debuted, and I was 25 at this point, we moved to LA. And um, within a few weeks, got another theme for a, a show that uh, Regis Philbin was doing at the time. And so it, it started to move out from there. Um, I took some classes at UCLA in the mechanics of film scoring and conducting to picture and things like that. They had a great program there in the evenings. And I started you know, trying to get an agent for scoring work because that was my main goal. And I ran into this Catch-22, which was um, you know, the agents would say, well, we don't represent composers like you that do these daytime television shows. And uh, we need to see a piece of film. It's not just about the music. And so I said, well, how do I get you a piece of film if I don't have an agent? And they said, well, you need to figure that out. And um, what happened was in about 1985, in the fall of 85, um, I uh, scored a student film called Chicken Thing that was directed uh, by Todd Holland. And it was his graduate film. Um, and it was the best student film I'd ever seen. And I did this you know, kind of classic 50s horror suspense score, although it was a very fun, funny uh, film. Um, but that's, you know, that's what he wanted. And I did it all on Emulator 2, which was the, the state-of-the-art sampler at the time. And uh, we had a great time doing it. And the movie went on to win 30 awards, including a Student Academy Award. And he got picked up by CAA as a director, and I got picked up by Triad Artists as a composer, uh, all off the student film, even though I'd been working in LA for four and a half years already. So um, that started the, the scoring. My, my first feature that I scored was Return to Horror High. And then I think the second was um, a strange science fiction movie. Because because I had done Chicken Thing, which was sort of suspense, horror, you know, in that genre, L.A., the one thing about L.A. is they'll type you forever. So, of course, now I'm being offered horror and suspense because that's what they're hearing that I can do, even though I can do many different types of music. 
along that way also, you know, during that time in the 80s or in the early 80s when Wendy and I had moved to L.A., we discovered that we, um, we met this actor or I met this actor that was living around the block from me. Um, we found out he was living around the block and his name was Patrick Swayze. And then he and I and his wife and Michael, we all became friends and we'd get together and talk about music. And in 1984, he wanted to know if I wanted to work on a song with him for a movie called Grandview USA. And uh, we wrote uh, She's Like the Wind. Um, and then it wasn't used in Grandview, but then it was picked up for Dirty Dancing. And that opened up a whole other range of possibilities because that movie was a sleeper hit. Mm -hmm. uh, my song was the third single and it went to number three on top on the Hot 100 and number one adult contemporary. And, and to this day, I have another cover of She's Like the Wind coming out this summer from an artist, a Norwegian artist based in Berlin. And a hip-hop version of the song was done in, the, in 2006, and that went to number two in Germany. And it's, it's just been this legacy, um, you know, an, an evergreen song, so, which is great. And, you know, and that opened up songwriting and, you know, working with other people. And that, that's what eventually brought me to Nashville. It was also 19 years in L.A. was enough. And right. af after these films, in, you'd probably remember in the late 80s, the trend in movie scoring was towards finding um, ex-rock and rollers mm -hmm. that, you know, they thought, oh, it'll be cool to get them, to, you know, to score my movie, when in fact, a lot of them didn't know what they were doing. Uh, but my agent, you know, and I was the guy that was like the trained guy, you know, and experienced, and um, my agent started trying to pair me up with different rock and roll people. Um, the only one that really took was with Jeff Skunk Baxter, who's still a great friend of mine, and we ended up doing some TV scoring together. But around that time, it, it you know, from the business standpoint, it was, I started to move more into television scoring, and through the 90s was very, very busy with that, and worked on a lot of shows that I loved, uh, like uh, Erie, Indiana. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I did 21 movies of the week for the networks, mm -hmm. including one for Freeze Entertainment, who did Eric's Revenge, <laughs> uh, and so right. it, was, it was like a reunion. Yeah, well, that was their that was their mainstay. They were mostly a t uh, television providers. They mostly did, yeah, TV movies of the week. That was kind of their 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 thing. Yeah, as a matter of fact, one of the family was Tom Freeze, who was a uh, right film editor. And uh, he worked on a lot of the uh, TV movies that I did for O'Hara Horowitz Productions. Um, so he, nice guy, nice guy. But anyway, so that, you know, that's kind of the overview. And in Nashville, I've done more songwriting and, um, you know, got very involved mm -hmm. in the arts world here and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's been, it's, it's a fun business if you have the stomach for it. Yeah, that's the thing. You got to have a pretty thick skin. Uh, to try to get to navigate it because for every everything you get there's 20 things you went for and didn't get and then you know even the things you do get can sometimes be we make you wish you never gotten them in the first place and so it's just you know it's it's it there's a lot of reward but you know it, it it's not for the faint of heart certainly i'll tell you a quick story i was on a panel 
of television composers. This would have been in the early 90s. And I was kind of representing, you know, newer guys coming up in the business. And it was at UCLA. And UCLA was doing this program that day called Careers in Music. And so ours was the TV music panel. And there was a guy sitting next to me. And he was sitting there very glum. At one point, one of the audience members, about 400 people in the audience, said, this is my question. Uh, what's the most essential element uh, that you have to have to be a television composer? And uh, oh, it was Gerald Freed was his name. And he leaned into the microphone and without even thinking, said, a good divorce lawyer. <laughs> and I remember looking at him thinking to myself, oh my God, don't let that be me. <laughs> yeah, that's one. Yeah, that's one of those ones where you look. Oh, you poor bastard. Yeah. What? What happened? Oh, it's like, uh, am I looking? Am I looking at twenty years in the future sitting next to me? Oh dear God. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. I think why my when the opportunity came up to leave L.A. after nineteen years, I I took it. It was just like you know what? Yeah. Let, it's it's time to to move on and you know explore you know, other things. I always say if you're in a creative field, you have to kind of change shape every five to seven years anyway so that you're not typed mm -hmm. for, for the rest of your life. Or sometimes the business demands it. It's like, you know, um, right. It, it's just the, the way it, it goes. So, but, but anyway, but it, again, oh, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's all I ever wanted to do and I can't quite call it a job. It's, it's, it's something completely different, <laughs> so. I'm not really pursuing the scoring work anymore, but I'm very involved with Nashville Film Festival and we do these panels where we'll bring in some composers and a number of them in the past few years have spoken to that, that they can mm -hmm. work, you know, from Atlanta or from wherever they are. Uh, and they say sometimes they'll have to fly in for that personal thing, maybe for the spotting session, you know, where it's more critical to be, you know, in person with each other but I can imagine that same process being done on a zoom call now you know frankly because it's mm -hmm. just it's just sitting around the room with the the picture and figuring out where music is going to go but yeah there, there's the the technology has has changed it um, but there's still I think that to break into the business uh, I think unless you develop some relationship with a director or whatever, I, I think if you're looking to break into the scoring business, you still need to do your time in L.A. for at least a, a few years. <laughs> yeah. You know. uh, speaking of the technology, I want to go back to when you were doing these uh, motion picture scores, you know, specifically, obviously, around the time of Phantom of the Mall, and you mentioned Stranded and Return to Horror High. Another thing that happened... Big time with 80s, uh, you know, certainly with low-budget horror movies or just low-budget films in general, electronic scores really exploded yeah. uh, during during the 1980s because obviously the technology was, was certainly more there, not compared to where it is now where if you wanted to, you could compose a score on an iPhone if you tried hard enough. Uh, but back then, you know, electronic equipment was really coming into the forefront. It was viewed as a much less expensive way to get scoring for a film. Uh, what was your, were you happy with that? Was we, we was electronic scoring something that you were very comfortable with and wanted to explore more? Or were you a little disappointed that you didn't have more opportunities to do something orchestral? I think it was a little of both. It was interesting because I got into synthesizers very early. That's how I ended up working with that 
little studio in Connecticut. I had um, two early synthesizers. They were called electrocomps. Uh, they, were, they were pretty radical at the time because you could actually play two notes at a time on them. And I had uh, two of those and a uh, TIAC uh, four-track with the 10-inch reels. And I would build scores on that, you know, using sound on sound. And uh, so I was really into the, the sense I, I loved being able to create my own music without having to rely on other people to play it. But I also studied or you know composition orchestration, and my um, teacher at UCLA, the guy that did these classes, Don Ray, had come out of the uh, he was music supervisor at CBS on staff there, and um, we were having lunch one day, and I was doing a lot of you know acoustic stuff. Um, and especially for the daytime television shows and things like that. Uh, and he, at lunch, said to me, he says, you know, are you familiar with synthesizers? And I said, yeah, I've worked with them for a long time. He says, you should go out and get, like, a really, you know, high-quality sampler or something and start to look at, you know, expanding what you're able to do. And it, it was natural to me. That's when I bought, well, first the Emulator 1, and then I bought the Emulator 2, uh, which, you know, for its time was an excellent machine. Uh, but then I, I started getting other synths uh, because the advent of MIDI and that you could lock synthesizers together and also the advent of the, um, uh, the Mac, the Apple Macintosh, and that these uh, sequencing programs were coming out for the Mac and you could get an interface and run all your synthesizers off your Mac. And that, that's when it was really you know, clicking for me that, okay, I can do a lot of this stuff you know, on my own. And also, because I had done Chicken Thing, uh, the student film, all on emulator. Um, and then I did um, Return to Hara High was an electronic score. Again, that's what they were giving me. They weren't you know, getting me the orchestral stuff. I was up for a couple of big orchestral jobs, most notably The Fly 2. Mm. Uh, and that would have been full orchestra in Berlin. Matter of fact, the producer mm. on that was uh, Mel Brooks. Right, right. And I got to sit with him in his office and talk with him for an hour and a half. So even though I didn't get the project, it was down to me, Chris Young, and Michael Kamen. Mm. So, you know, there were a couple of experienced heavyweights, especially Michael. And, uh, but I say it's my greatest rejection ever just because I got to sit with Mel Brooks and talk with him. So. Well, yeah. If you're going to get rejected, get rejected by Mel Brooks. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I had worked with his wife uh, three years prior uh, with Anne Bancroft on a, a TV show. So, and she was wonderful to work with. She was just incredible. So let's go to Phantom of the Mall. I, wanna, I mean, obviously... This is uh, coming in a, uh, in that little short run there where you had Return to Horror High and Stranded in these other films, and it certainly fell in place with the you know those kind of movies. And was this through Freeze? Did, had you worked with Freeze at that point? No, this it came through my agent at uh, Triad. Um, I can't remember. My first agent at Triad was Brian Gersh, and then his assistant Joel Roman became my agent. And uh, Joel 
and I are still very close friends. We worked together. Then when he went to William Morris, I went to William Morris with him. But I think by this point, it might have been Joel, it might have been Brian, but it, it definitely came through my agent. Now, what was your take on the project when it was presented to you? Because at this time, if people, you know, I'm not sure a lot of people remember, there seemed to be a lot of Phantom of the Opera just in the air at yeah. the time. Because not only was the, was the Broadway musical really blowing up big right around then, uh, there, Robert Englund, who was Freddy Krueger, he was off doing his Phantom of the Opera. There was this other one called Phantom of the Ritz, and now there's Phantom of the Mall. It just seemed like there was just phantom stuff everywhere. Yeah. Uh, did you draw any influence from any other iteration of, of Phantom of the Opera at all? I mean, obviously, the, 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 the Broadway musical isn't going to be of much help to you because it's right. not, not exactly the same thing. But was there, was there any... Uh, desire for you musically to sort of reference any of that or did you just say no 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 I got to go by what they're trying to do here specifically yeah I I wasn't influenced by any of the other you know the the only thing is to go you know gothic but that's hard right anyway but uh no uh, I I was not influenced uh by anything it's, matter of fact I I in the score I used some unusual techniques um, that I was experimenting with at the time, where if you listen to parts of it, um, I tuned some of my synthesizers to non-standard tuning. You know, like splitting an octave into 15 or 16 parts instead of 12. There were these, you know, in-between tones. Um, I did that with another film that I did called Megaville. And um, so I was actually experimenting with this movie a little bit, which I figured I could do because I figured nobody's going to see this movie anyway. So I might as well, <laughs> I might as well try out some stuff with it. So, uh, but no, I, I just approached it like any other movie. It's, it's like, this is my take on the action here. The movie plays kind of as a spoof of the Phantom of the Idea. Um, it, it doesn't take itself very seriously. And it's because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Phantom of the Mall. It knows right. what it is. Right. And and so did you feel a need to try to underline the comedy at any point, or did you really want to just play it straight and let the performances and the dialogue and all that sort of speak for itself? Did you feel the need to underline anything with your score? No, I, I approached it as straight horror um, uh, because I have a, a, a theory about funny music, which is... Um, it's like a, a perfect example is, speaking of Mel Brooks, is Young Frankenstein, which has one of the most beautiful scores. I mean, the, the main melody, it's, and there are some moments where there's a little underline that um, John Morris, uh, the composer, does. But otherwise, he's playing it very straight and very, you know, 1930s gothic horror movie. And, and that's what makes it so effective. If you had played it for laughs, I think it would have been terrible. But um, yeah, I, I approached it, you know, just as let's work with the horror scenes and, and uh, you know, some of the love scenes also and things like that. And, you know, I also had a song in the movie thinking about it. I just remembered this in one of the love scenes, which was um, right. Heart, Heart yeah. of Darkness, which I co-wrote with Lara Cody. Uh, for the film, and that was a separate contract. They knew, you know, about the song from Dirty Dancing, and they said, you know, do you want to write a song for this film? And it was a whole separate 
budget and contract and everything. I know they're going to want to talk to you. Who did you work with uh, primarily from the film? Because I, I did a commentary with uh, Richard Friedman, and he said that he wasn't as involved in the scoring as he would have been uh, otherwise for some other reasons. So did you work mostly with Tom Freeze? Yeah, I, th I seem to remember working with Bob Freeze. I, I believe it was more Bob Freeze. Um, they would come to my... I was working out of my apartment at the time. Mm -hmm. I had the second bedroom set up uh, with the TV and the computer and all my synths, and so they could come and, and preview stuff. Uh, and I seem to remember them coming over. Uh, um, yeah, I don't remember much in interaction with the director at all. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the movie itself, are there any specific scenes that even all these years later, kind of st stand out to you as being the most challenging or interesting to score for? Well, there's one sequence that I liked, and I actually uh, found it online on YouTube yesterday, and I was like, oh, that's, that's a fun scene, is um, where Eric uh, kills the guy who's a real annoying teenage jerk uh, using the escalator to kill him. Right, and right, And right. I remember... Um, that was challenging just to get the proper build as he's heading up the escalator, you know, to the point that he's, he's dead. And uh, uh, the other challenge was the one where the whole mole blows up. That's always a, uh, you know, yeah. a, a challenge to just build the, the tension in, in those scenes. But um, sometimes the, the most difficult scenes are not the action sequences. They're the you know, the, what I call walk and talks. And it's like, how do you play something neutral? You know, it's, it's, um, those are, those are difficult. But, um, you know, I, I remember, I think I did the score in probably two to three weeks. Mm. You know, you don't sit and focus on stuff too much when you're working at that type of speed. Did you record the score in your apartment, or was there a recording studio out there that you did it at? Yeah, I was using a studio at that time called Juniper Studios in Burbank. Mm -hmm. I would pack up my, all my stuff was in road cases. And so I'd pack up the road cases, truck it over to Juniper, and we'd spend uh, a few days tracking everything uh, and mm -hmm. then mixing. And uh, at that time was delivered on half-inch two-track, I think. Uh, wasn't, yeah. I don't even think it was broken down into stems. Um, and this is before Pro Tools or anything like that. So all, <clears throat> all the score was transferred to MAG, and uh, so the music was mixed in that traditional style with changing reels. Mm -hmm. Go into the back of the dubbing stage into the, into the second room or the control room, and it's just a wall full of these MAG uh, machines with the, the reels on them. And it's like, okay, it's time to change reels. So it was, it was definitely more of a mechanical process back then than with Pro Tools. Mm, I can, oh, yeah, I can only imagine. The workflow, uh, now that everything's nonlinear, uh, everything's changed just so interesting enough for me, too, as an editor. Uh, it's just, it's, you can't even, it's hard to even explain to people what it was like 30 years ago, 20 years ago to do anything. Yeah, you know they they just they just kind of look at you and go, wait, you actually had to like touch like real tape and film and stuff. It's like yeah, yeah. It, it's not just. I mean, when I took my um, conducting 
uh, for scoring uh, class at UCLA with, with Don Ray, um, this would have been mid, maybe 83, 84, something like that. And um, we had a 16-piece student orchestra that we'd write for and then conduct our cues to picture. Uh, we were using old episodes of Hawaii Five-O. There was no click. We, con we conducted the old-fashioned way, which was to a stopwatch and pops and streamers. And, and that's how you got your cues. And so it, it actually made it, once it moved more into the digital realm of using sequencers and things like that, I felt very prepared for that. And actually, it made it easy for me to make a grid that had all the proper timings to hit all my marks. Right, right. Now, I've, uh, this is kind of a side question. We've remastered the film originally, you know, from the, I believe it's the inner positive, and the rights to the movie have kind of shifted around over the last few years, and um, no one can find the tapes for the score. Do you have any idea where they could have ended up? Uh, you know, um, at that time, it, uh, I have no idea. Uh, and, you know, this yeah. is before we made backup I mean, I'm sure a backup was made, uh, but, you know, they might have ended up at the um, place that handled the dubbing because they would have been the ones to transfer it to MAG. Uh, it could have ended up there in their storage vault, and I don't even rem remember the name of the uh, dubbing stage, although it would probably be in the credits. But, yeah, you know, it, it's unfortunate. It was right before any type of digital medium, such as a DAT tape or anything like that, where you could easily make you know, backups and, uh, and store them easily. Most of those scores, um, I think I have Prayer of the Roller Boys because I think that had started right around then. Otherwise, I don't have uh, Return to Horror High or Stranded or, you know, any of those. Mm -hmm. when did, do you, were you there for any of the mixing of the music for Phantom of the Mall or did you just deliver... Uh, and let them handle the rest of it. I was there for all of it. I, I'm a hands-on composer when it comes to the dubbing process. Even on all the TV movies that I did later, I'd always go to the dubbing session. Because questions arise, or, you know, can we change this? Or if somebody wants to re-edit something, at least I'm there to oversee that process so that it still sounds musical. Uh, but yeah, I, I, and I actually in, enjoyed it. I was called the dubbing stage uh, tense boredom because it's incredibly tense. Mm -hmm. You have to be hyper vigilant on any pops, clicks. Is, is this dialogue getting lost? Is this and this? And yet it's such a lengthy process that you're incredibly bored. And I would always bring these books of uh, Sunday New York Times crossword puzzles. And then, you know, when I had to pay attention, I'd pay attention. Ultimately, I mean, like I said, Family of the Mall is a very, uh, I think that, that title tells you right there and then what kind of movie you're getting into. Uh, what, uh, how, how did you feel about the final movie after you saw it and all put together? And did you feel that your, your work was well represented in it? I think the work was well represented. As you said, the movie is what it is. And also, you immediately get a sense of what the movie is when you see the name Paulie Shore in the credits. <laughs> that is a giveaway right there. Uh, but, um, you know, it was, it was an okay project to, to work on. It was, a, it was a paycheck, as you know we say. And it felt like, okay, this is, 
you know, the moving along, it's my third or fourth film, which, which was good that we were building some momentum. Mm -hmm. But it got to a point actually with these low budget horror movies and sus suspense stuff uh, that I actually um, told my agent, I said, I don't want to do any more of these because it's, that's going to be it for me for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. We drew the line at one project that in retrospect, I regret, uh, but I was offered to do the score for um, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Oh. But in retrospect, it was oh. like, oh, I should have taken that movie. But I was really very concerned about getting typed into that genre. Mm -hmm. I really wouldn't have minded being typed into suspense and action, but straight on horror, it, 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 it gets creepy after a while. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, here it is all these years later, and, you know, you've gone on to have any, no any amount of success doing any number of different projects. I mean, you have a very varied career, and, you know, you've done everything from pop hits to movie scores, and you continue to work out of Nashville. I mean, you you're a very busy man. Is it odd for you, or does it surprise you in any way? that these little movies that you did during that period, Return to Ohio High and especially Phantom of the Mall, kind of have been starting to come back for you a little bit, that people are starting to bring them back up and people like me are contacting you saying, hey, Phantom of the Mall, let's talk about this. That, that one definitely surprised me. Uh, Horror High doesn't surprise me that that's popped up because it was actually a fun little movie. It had its flaws. Yeah. It, oh, yeah. Talk about not taking itself seriously. I mean, it was a movie within a movie, almost within a movie. And I, I went all out on that. I went just over the top with the, the score on, on that. <laughs> I remember the, the scene where George Clooney is killed in that movie, and I used all these creepy voices and all this. But, um, but yeah, actually, Phantom of the Mall uh, surprised me when, when you contacted me about that. I was like, really? <laughs> but over the years, I've gotten some uh, through Facebook or emails or whatever, saying, I love the song Heart of Darkness. And my co-writer actually found the recording of it. Yeah, now you mentioned George Clooney returned to our high, the, the Facts of Life guy. I don't know what he went on to after that. He was, I, I remember I remember liking him quite a bit. I hope that he uh, hangs in there. Maybe something will break for him someday. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. I, I really, I heard an interview with him not too long ago uh, where, um, Somebody asked him what his first movie was, and he said, Red Tide. And I said, no, it was Return to Horror High, and why aren't you admitting that? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, Stacey, I want to thank you very much for, for walking back down Mary Lane about uh, so many of your early projects, and especially Phantom of the Mall. I think fans are really going to get a kick out of hearing uh, your memories of working on these projects and what it was like to work on these types of films back then, because... Uh, you know, there was such a glut of low-budget horror in the 80s. And again, it was, you know, there, there seemed to be a lot of pieces of pie for a lot of really up-and-coming composers to cut their teeth on these things. And, you know, being, uh, using electronics and sometimes orchestral work, but really just how important and pioneering all those uh, electronic scores were back then. Not that they didn't happen in the 70s or in the 60s, but, I mean, the 80s is almost, it just seemed like it was like an overnight explosion. Yeah, it, it, it was, and it, it's, um, you know, because the producers also began to realize that they could cut their music budgets back. 
and also that logistically things could be delivered more quickly because you didn't have to go into the scoring session, which was another you know, number of days and, or a week or whatever to get everything done and then mixing that down. So it was a much quicker and less expensive uh, medium. And that continued into the, the television work that I did as well. Because, um, you know, Erie, Indiana, then I, I scored a bunch of episodes for Beverly Hills 90210 in their first season and, you know, uh, all sorts of different stuff. But, but yeah, but it, it, was, it was still, it was a, a fun period. It's, it's interesting, you just jogged my memory. The first film that I almost got before Return to Horror High, uh, and I didn't even know about it until the editor said, hey, I heard it was real close between you and Maurice Jarre, and I said, what are you talking about? And it was the movie No Way Out. Oh, wow. It was down wow. to me and Maurice. And um, evidently the, the producer, she had gotten a hold of a copy of Chicken Thing, and they opted to go with the guy that had more experience. But if you watch that movie, he did an electronic score for that film. Yeah, he, he experimented with a lot of electronic scores there in the 80s. Like Witness was one that he did. That was like trying. I mean, he was he was a composer who could vacillate between the grand orchestral stuff and then do the more intimate kind of experimental electronic work. Yeah. So if you get to if you have to get rejected, you have to get rejected by Mel Brooks, and if you have to lose a cool gig, lose it to Maurice Jar. Right. I think you can sleep at night with that, probably. Yeah, I, I think you know, so. Just, you know, and then comfort myself in those losses that. You know, she's like the wind is still on the radio to this day. So it's uh, yeah, that's just, that, that's, that's got to be the one to say. Like, well, boy, there's the the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, you know, you but know? it's it's if somebody says to me, "Wow, you must have made a, a ton of money on that," I I often I say you you're not getting the real point here. The real point is having something that has lasted this long. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah. heard stories from cancer survivors how they dance to it. You know, I mean, there are all these emotional stories about it. And it's like Patrick and I created a, an or, something organic that we threw out into the universe and took on a life of its own. And that's the best thing about it. Yeah, I mean, the, obviously the creation of that song wasn't some, you know, sort of uh, just crass. Like, we're going to go out and make a million dollars with this song. It's like you did it because you wanted to do it. And yeah, you, you had a desire to make the song. The fact that it became part of a film that became very, very, I mean, that's one of those films that's just priceless to some people. Right. Uh, you know, the fact that it became part of that was just a combination of good timing, luck, and just, you know, happenstance and so forth. So, you know, that's, that's one of those things I'm sure you've encountered that, you know, talent is extremely important because it helps back up their people's faith in you, but luck and just chance play such a big role in all of this. Yeah, um... But, you know, I still go by the, the Chinese proverb that luck is when opportunity and preparation meet. It's very true. Yeah. Yes, we had the song and we had written it, but we did a really good demo of it with Patrick singing it, my girlfriend Wendy on it, uh, my guitarist I used a lot, Zeke Zerngable, who actually plays guitar on uh, Heart of Darkness for Phantom. And, um, you know, so that... It's not like he just sat and played the song. He played this demo for the director, and they were like, oh, wow, we really like this. Right, right. Yeah, so you were, I mean, it was like a situation. It was like, always be ready. Right, exactly. You know? Yeah. You just because you never, you never know. Yeah. 
So, uh, any closing thoughts on Phantom Law you can think of? I, th I think we covered pretty much everything. No, I'm, I'm glad it's getting a, a, a second look. I'll have to take a second look at it myself because it's, it's been years since I saw it in its entirety. You know, and, mm -hmm. and just to kind of, again, prep myself for this, I, um, uh, I you know, just dr pulled some scenes up online uh, and uh, watched them. I was like, oh, I, re I remember doing this. That's, that's fun. Robert J. Coster has been many things throughout his career in the film and television industries. He's been a second unit director, he's been an assistant director, production manager, and producer. He has over 50 credits to his name, both on the big screen and small screens. But of course, we're here to talk to him today about his job as the associate producer of Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. But before we get into Phantom of the Mall, I'd like to talk to you a little bit, Mr. Coster, about your early days in the industry and a couple other notable genre credits that those of you listening out there might find very interesting. And basically, what led you to want to become part of the film and television industry? Because I understand there were a lot of members of your family who were already ensconced in that world, and uh, I imagine that had quite a bit of uh, uh, influence in your decision to enter the business. Correct. And my stepmother was an actress, and my mother's parents were two of the biggest vaudeville stars in Hungary, in Budapest. And uh, let's see, my brother was an actor and uh, my son is an assistant director. It would, be, it would have been absurd for me to do anything else. <laughs> so how did you first get started? What were your first jobs in the business and what, what specifically did you want to do? Did you want to produce, direct? What was your goal? Uh, okay. Uh, what I wanted to do was direct. As it turns out, when I tried it in New York on commercials, uh, I wasn't happy doing it. So I, I went into uh, producing, which I was much happier with. I'm much happier arranging other things for people to use them easier than I was in trying to create something. Mm -hmm. So as far as uh, getting into the business, uh in, when I got into the Director's Guild, well, I went through UCLA and I have a degree in motion pictures for whatever that's worth. You want to know how much that's worth? Yes, how much? Nothing. Right. So, I mean, in those days, it was worth nothing anyway. We had good people in my class. Listen, Francis Coppola, mm -hmm. uh, Steve Burem. Uh, I, I, I could go and name quite a few. Tony Barsha. Carol Ballard, you know, mm. people of, of note who were in my class at UCLA. Anyway, okay, Noel Black he's, uh, was a friend until he died. So I went to UCLA, and I knew I wanted to be in the motion picture business somehow. Uh, I settled on doing something that was non-creative, because as a producer, uh, you're not very creative. You hire people who are to do that for you. And I was very happy doing that as a production manager, hiring people, running the business end of the movie business. Um, the first couple of first few movies I did uh, was I, I was in Los Angeles and I, I wanted to get out. Uh, 
because uh, Los Angeles is sort of a social and psychological and, and uh, uh, you know, familial bubble. And it doesn't really relate to anything else in the world. So I wanted to go. Actually, what I wanted to do was go and live in Europe and make movies there. Mm. But I got as far as New York and I lived there for 10 years. And uh, I, I started with commercials in New York. Now, in, in those days, the Directors Guild uh, had a couple of major ways of bringing new members in. Nowadays, they have the uh, training program. But in those days, they had nothing of the sort. And each of the major studios, RKO, Fox, Warners, etc., had a choice of two people that the Directors Guild would take in as assistant directors uh, without any training or anything, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there were also two others who were brought in by the Directors Guild who were relatives of directors. I was one of those because my dad was a director. So I came in because of nepotism. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, nobody knew me in Hollywood, which was actually a good thing. I moved to New York where nobody knew who dad was. Mm -hmm. And I started at the bottom uh, working on TV commercials. And I did that for several years. And then industrials and then smaller movies. And then larger movies. Last picture I did there was the Super Cops. Mm. MGM. And then I moved back here in 1973. I moved there in 62. And I moved back here in 1973. And by that time I already had a, re a reputation. Uh, so I was hired right away by ABC Circle Phones. And then by uh, Eli Landau Productions uh, to, uh, uh, to do Man in the Glass Booth. Uh, then I uh, ultimately I worked uh, uh, for every uh, every studio there was Disney, Universal, and and uh, all of them. Uh, I freelanced. I never worked for any one studio. I, I didn't. Uh, that was a conscious effort on my part. I didn't want did not want anybody to own me. And uh, uh, I had a very nice career uh, until. I guess the mid-90s, at that point, my gray hair uh, got the better of me, and uh, they wanted younger people. And so I kind of drifted into teaching, and since then I've been lecturing in schools. First, I had a lecture series on uh, film production, how to set up a movie, and after that got way past me, because now everything is digital and the process is different. Uh, I started teaching about film and media history, and I still do. I have a class I teach at uh, Cal State Channel Islands. Not this semester, but I'll do it again next semester. On the history of film. So, as I mentioned in my intro, I wanted to discuss, before we get into Phantom of the Mall, a few of your other notable uh, horror genre credits that you have. And you have actually quite a few very interesting ones that we wanted to start off with. Uh, you were the unit production manager on one of the uh, most revered and beloved horror TV movies of all times, and that is uh, Dan Curtis' production of Trilogy of Terror. Oh, yes. Oh, boy, Dan Curtis. Yeah, Dan Curtis. That has become a, 
a certified classic, especially the Karen Black episode with the Zuni doll. I had the Zuni doll. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, golly, what was his name? The guy who made it was a, a fra- family friend. Oh, and okay. he made four of them, and he gave one to me. Oh. And and uh, unhappily, it was stolen by uh, some movers when I when I moved oh. uh, from one apartment to another. Uh, it's a shame, uh, but that that was uh, fascinating. There were four of them. Uh, there was one that had that was uh, mechanically operated, and what what uh, the guy did was he fashioned a system where there was a post that came down between the doll's legs and actually through the carpet and through the floor. And there was a prop man under the floor lying down and using a... uh, Eric Von Bulow, thank you. Eric Von Bulow was the man who built it. He was a family friend, nice guy. Uh, he, He could run using this post he could run the camera, uh, the uh, uh, doll, across the floor, and its little legs would pump. But he didn't get out. It, they were attached by uh, roller skate wheels uh, to the uh, 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 to the stick that he was holding down, and he had cut a path in the plywood under the carpet. So when he was running it around under the carpet, uh, the doll, which was above the carpet, looked like it was it, its feet were pumping its its legs were going uh, brilliant brilliant man and uh, I had one of the ones that wasn't rigged like that uh, he had one whose mouth moved you know when it talked and so forth right uh, and uh, I, I don't know I guess Karen Black got one of the others and Dan Curtis got one of the others the guard with the earring uh, it it was <laughs> very interesting. Dan Curtis was interesting because I was the production manager and, and we I was looking for locations. I had a location mm-hmm. manager working with me and I had gone to uh, four or five motels. Uh, was one of the other uh, segments. And I had taken pictures of the motels, gotten permission to film there, took the pictures back to Dan Curtis, and I said, here, this is what the motels look like. You have to take take your choice. Which one do you want? And he said, you choose. I said, yeah, but wait a minute. You're directing. He said, yeah, but do you think people really go to my shows to see a motel? <laughs> I said, okay. So I picked the motel. Anyway... Uh, he, 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 was, he was unique. Mm-hmm. We had a production meeting I will never forget in which uh, Dan Curtis had the script in front of him. All of the department heads were there, uh, including the casting director, and I always made the extras casting people come too, and the editor. And we were all sitting around a big conference table at 20th Century Fox uh, everybody had gotten their cups of coffee and they're sitting there expectantly. Dan Curtis came in, opened him his script. Everybody was silence in the room. The great man is going to speak. He opened the script and he said, okay, do, are there any questions about this? And not a soul said anything. And he said, okay, and he closed the script and left the room. 
The entire production meeting lasted, what, 15 seconds? <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that. That was the Aunt Gerda. Wow. So after that, in 1976, you were the production supervisor on the American International Pictures presentation of a Bert I. Gordon film, The Food of the Gods, which I would think, uh, if you agree with me or not, is probably one of the best or most notable giant killer rat movies. Yes, you could say that. (laughs) (laughs) You could say that. We shot it in um, Canada, in Vancouver. On, on, a, on an island off Horseshoe Bay, north of Vancouver, called Bowen Island. Bowen Island was like a summer place for very wealthy people. It was like Lake Arrowhead, okay? Mm-hmm. Except there was no place there to stay. There was no motel, no hotel. They were all private residences. And it was God's country. It was just gorgeous. They had these huge houses there and so forth. But they did have one, uh, uh, it wasn't a motel. It was an installation of the CNIB, the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, where they would send blind people up there to spend the summer. Mm-hmm. Why did they send blind people to one of the most gorgeous places <laughs> in the world? I don't know. You have to ask the Canadians. But it had like 30 rooms, and we put the crew up in that. The Bermans, uh, you know, Tom, Tom and his wife were just wonderful. They made, all, they did all the special effects and everything, mm-hmm. and uh, they're brilliant. They're brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I tried to tell the people at AIP that since we were shooting in December and January, uh, it, it's sort of. Not like Hollywood, uh, in, in that the sun rises at 10 in the morning, goes down at 2.30 or 3 in the afternoon. Right, yeah. So yeah. your daylight is kind of limited. You don't want to, you know, you're, you're... However, Bert I. Gordon wanted to go up there because his daughter was going to school in Vancouver, uh, one of the universities there, and he hadn't seen her for a while. I can only imagine that uh, any memories of how I mean, I have to assume that you have some memories of the rats. The actual oh, rats God, do used. I ever. I have memories of the rats. <laughs> they come out at about three in the morning when I'm asleep. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they were, uh, well, they were all puppets and, and uh, there were no robots. They were just puppets and, and mm-hmm. uh, um I remember uh, they had a couple of rat's heads on sticks that they poked Ida Lupino with, and it looks like a couple of guys with sticks with the rat's heads on them <laughs> poking Ida Lupino. You know, <laughs> listen, for Bert it worked, and, and as long as it worked for Bert, in, in, in some ways his, his uh, uh, mentality when he was shooting the picture was not unlike, uh, well, uh, let's not go into that. He he actually did make good pictures, and and he was a very nice man personally, and and I got along with him very well. So before we get to uh, uh, Phantom of the Mall, there's one other uh, horror related feature I wanted to talk about. It's one of the best, I think, one of the best TV movies that's ever been made as far as uh, the genre is concerned, and that's Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Yeah. 
And I was wondering what your memories are of working on that, because that's a film that was very hard for people to see for a number of years. It's fortunately gotten a, a DVD and Blu-ray release in the recent years. But it's, it's one of those ones that really made its mark on the people who saw it. It, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a good show. I, I enjoyed that show more than, than uh, 90% of the other shows I worked on. And uh, Frank DiFolita mm -hmm. was really, really easy to work with. He knew exactly what he wanted as a director. I think when he wrote his books, he wrote them uh, with uh, uh, the idea that they would eventually become screenplays. Mm. So they're very easily divisible by acts mm -hmm. and scenes, you know. And uh, he, was, he, he, he would come out completely prepared in the morning knew exactly what he was going to shoot and uh, we we had a great time with that okay in regards to my next question in all fairness to the people listening out there this is something that I already confirmed and spoke with Mr. Coster about before we started recording this interview but I'm going to make it sound like I'm asking it for the first time just because well why not uh, so I understand, uh, Mr. Coster, in Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, at times you also played the Scarecrow itself. Is that true? Yeah, it's funny you should ask. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, what Larry Drake, who played uh, Bubba, mm -hmm. was large. Uh, um, not, not overly so, but he was stout, mm -hmm. portly. Mm -hmm. And if he wore the... Uh, armor which you have to wear when you when you have squibs mm -hmm. you know because they they're little explosions uh, you know squibs are uh, what you see when somebody shoots something right. when the bullet lands uh, it makes a mm -hmm. you know that's a squib and usually it's a small bag of blood with a small charge of powder under it and it's set off electrically by the uh, special effects man and uh, it, for in order for Larry to wear the armor to protect him against those things when he was being shot, uh, he would have looked uh, absurdly large. Mm -hmm. And I was very thin in those days. And I was able to wear the, I was about the same, same height as Larry. Mm -hmm. And since you couldn't see my face anyway, because I was behind the burlap bag, mm -hmm. uh, uh, they gave me the, the armor and the squibs, and I was the scarecrow down to the point where in the last scene, uh, where, the, where the scarecrow hands the flower to the girl, mm -hmm. that was my hand. J.D. later redid it, and it became his hand. <laughs> and that's all right. I, I forgive him. You know. uh, but that, that was another of those special shows that when you worked on it just went smooth as silk in fact there was one day when when we were weathered out uh we were shooting in piru mm -hmm. uh which is up here uh in uh, uh ventura county near magic mountain mm -hmm. and uh th there was what was called a red flag alert which means that there was a, a very high danger of fire and the fire department told us we couldn't shoot, so I sent everybody home. And uh, we picked up the next day when when uh, the red flag alert had finished. 
and and uh, we still finished five thousand dollars under budget, or actually quite a bit more than that, mm. uh, because the show went so well, it went so smoothly. Everybody was, everybody was working, uh, uh, you know, one hundred and twenty percent. So, moving forward, how did you get hooked up? with uh, Charles Freeze and Freeze Entertainment, and then how did that lead into Phantom of the Mall? Well, I was working with Charles Freeze. I did a couple of shows uh, with him. Trying to Oh, I did. they hired me to do uh, Super Carrier, the oh, TV okay. series. Oh, okay. And I worked on Super Carrier for a while. And uh, when that was over, uh, I tried to leave, but <laughs> Chuck Freeze said no. We're doing this other show. Uh, we'd like you to be the the UPM on it. Actually, it was Brian Hickox uh, who did it. He was sort of the head of production mm-hmm. of uh, Freeze Enterprises at the time. And uh, Chuck Freeze never had anything directly to do with any of the shows I did there. Because I, I did Super Carrier and then uh, uh, Phantom of the Mall... And then there was another picture with uh, Richard Crenna, the Hillside Stranglers, mm, mm-hmm. that I also did for Chuck Freeze, and that was about all. But uh, as far as uh, Phantom of the Mall, I was I was the associate producer. They wanted me to be the production manager, but I couldn't because they weren't that particular entity of Freeze Enterprises was not a, uh, 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 a signatory to the Directors Guild, and I've been a member of the Directors Guild mm. since 1961, mm-hmm. and I couldn't step out of category, mm. you know? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't work on a picture as a production manager uh, on a picture that was not part of a signatory. Mm. So I became the associate producer, and we hired a production manager, uh, and uh, I, I helped him off and on, you know, but I, I had wider uh, responsibilities. But I was there a good part of the time when we were shooting. Uh, I suppose you probably already heard from, uh, you, you've spoken to Richard Friedman, right? Oh, yes, yes. And he, you know, I was going to ask you about uh, your memories of the uh, incident in which the mall got flooded. Yeah! <laughs> My memories. I'll tell you, that is one heck of a story. What happened was, I don't know what he told you, but I'll tell you from my point of view. We were shooting a scene in the atrium of the uh, uh, Sherman Oaks Galleria Mm -hmm. on Ventura Boulevard. And it has a three-story tall atrium. And all of the stores are arranged around this atrium. Well, most of the stores anyway. There are a few wings going off to the side, but it's three stories tall. And there was a scene in which one of the guys, one of the stuntmen, one of the characters in the picture, uh, on fire falls off the third story. Mm-hmm. And he fell down into an airbag on the on the floor. We had stuntmen all over with fire extinguishers and and uh, safety uh, experts, and we had an ambulance standing by outside just in case anything happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I never wanted to take any chances with anything like that. 
Uh, but there, there was a guy on fire on the third floor, and he falls off the ledge uh, into an airbag. <laughs> so, I uh, and this was two in the morning. Mm-hmm. Now everybody from the uh, uh, Sherman Oaks Galleria had gone home. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't anybody with us, uh, as I recall. Yeah, there was one guy from the office, right? Uh, who who was just there to point out where the men's room was and stuff <laughs> like that, and uh, so I I we had of course since we were filming uh, inside a public place, even if it was closed to the public at that moment, uh, we had a fire marshal with us, and since there was going to be a guy on fire on the third floor. I asked the fire marshal if he could please tell me uh, what we can do to prevent the smoke detectors from keying the uh, sprinkler system. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, it's very simple. Uh, Here's what you do. You take styrofoam cups and you tape them around the sprinkler heads and that will prevent (laughs) the smoke from getting in. There was a flood. You wouldn't believe. God, the the, the water was, the, 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 the escalators were waterfalls. The, the, uh, 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 the third floor was flooding onto the second floor. The second floor was flooding onto the first floor. Uh, and it went off in the stores around. Oh. So all of the uh, books in the bookstore were ruined. Mm. Uh, a lot of the uh, uh, clothing was ruined in the clothing store. Oh my God! <laughs> the next morning, I went to the to the uh, uh, insure. I called the insurance company and my insurance representative. I said, "You got to meet me at the uh, at the uh, uh, Sherman Oaks <laughs> Galleria. It's going to be closed, but <laughs> tell them you're with Chuck Freeze." And he came in and he just started laughing. (laughs) There was was nothing else he could do. I don't know how much of that Richard told you. Uh, He told me enough that it certainly was pretty bad, but I understand that the... I I find it interesting that the mall would even let you keep shooting there after something like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we had a contract. Uh, Anyway, as I recall, I mean, this is, what, 30 years ago now. Uh, as I recall, the fire department had to pick up the brunt of that because their silly fire marshal had given us the uh, the wrong advice. Uh, God. So our insurance didn't have to pay that much. <laughs> that was one of the great events of my, my career, <laughs> I'll tell you. It certainly was the wettest. <laughs> I can only imagine, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we had we had a good time. Pauly Shore was fun. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Pauly because this was right before he kind of broke out and became a, a big star there for a while. What are your memories of working with Pauly? My memories are that he sure as hell deserved it. He, he was very good. He was funny. He was happy. He was there all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what he's like to work with now. I mean, it's 30 years later. But uh, he's he was just, he was aces. And then I what, couldn't be happier with him. What about Morgan, uh, our uh, Morgan Fairchild? Well, she was beautiful. Yeah. 
she was there. She was she was professional. Mm -hmm. She was there on time all the time. Uh, knew her lines, spoke them well. She she was what you would expect mm -hmm. uh, somebody of her uh, uh, caliber to be. She was a professional, and she was just fine. I remember. I think, uh, uh, God, what was it? Uh, one one of the TV shows. Entertainment Tonight, or yeah, Entertainment Tonight. That was it. Came to interview her, <laughs> and and I said, you know, they're they're here to interview you. And she was about to do a scene. She said, for God's sakes, keep them away from me. I don't want to have anything to do with them. Mm. And. Uh, she finished the scene and the next thing I knew she was in her dressing room talking to entertainment today. So, so somebody must have gone over and spoken to her, I guess. Or she just decided that she finished the scene and she was going to do it. Right. You know? right. But she was very nice, very good. She was always on time, mm -hmm. uh, uh, always knew her lines very well and everybody else's. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was right in the scene and she did she did very well she was fine she was a pleasure to work with any other memories of shooting on the film there were a couple of uh car stunts that were done on location and just anything else with the mall because it's a uh, you shot in a couple different look you shot in the mall and then you had a studio out in valencia for some of the sort of the underground uh you know in the in the tunnels and the air vents oh yeah we built we built uh, the uh uh the air conditioning ducts out there mm-hmm that he was crawling around yeah. above the ceilings of the, uh, yeah, we built them out there. Uh, the art director did. Uh, yeah, he, he built several different uh, versions of these ducts large enough that a person could uh, uh, crawl through them. You know, one one facing right, one facing left, mm -hmm. uh, one uh, at, with, with a, a blind end. Uh, one, uh, all of them having some kind of grate in the floor that uh, the guy could look down into the room and so forth. That we shot out in Valencia. There were a number of um, uh, warehouses mm -hmm. that had been made over in Valencia as sound stages. Oh. And the walls were covered with sound uh, deadening material and so forth. Like like a soundstage in Hollywood would have been, mm -hmm. and uh, th that was out there. We shot out there for that, and we shot out there for uh, Supercarrier too. Oh, okay. Uh, they were used for quite a lot of movies. I, I remember that there was a house we used. Oh, right, I think right. The one that was supposed to burn down. Mm -hmm. I remember the special effects guys. Now Matt, Matt Mungle, uh, who did. Uh, a few specialized special effects. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he didn't do all of them, as I recall, but he did most of them. He was very good. He was brilliant. I wouldn't be surprised if he's working on much bigger pictures now. Oh yeah, he's he's gone on to have a one. He's gone on to have a big career, actually. Good, good, because he was good. He was very good. Uh, I remember the house had a fire in it, mm -hmm. which didn't really hurt the house. Yeah, no, it was, uh, th there was that. And then uh, you uh, you have a really, actually, for a, a low-budget production, you had a really big stunt crew on this thing. Hello? Well, uh, the fact is, 
Yeah, many of them were at that uh, uh, firefall where the guy mm-hmm. jumped off the uh, atrium in uh, Galleria. Because mm-hmm. we had like 10 people standing around at that at that point. Five of them had fire extinguishers. Uh, there were a couple of guys at the top uh, where he was to fall from who would set him on fire and another guy standing there with another fire extinguisher. And, I mean, we covered him uh, fairly thoroughly. So all of the stuntmen are not necessarily people who, who appeared on camera. Mm-hmm. So Phantom of the Mall comes out, and it doesn't do very much theatrically, but, you know, it becomes something of a of a video hit, and uh, it's become something of a, a certified cult classic over the years. Why do you think people enjoy this movie so much when they when they discover it? I think uh, people enjoy it uh, partially for the fact that it's kind of campy, isn't it? You know, it it's Richard Friedman, consciously or not so, made a marvelous parody of the Phantom Pictures, <laughs> and and that appeals to our kind of cynical audience these days, you know. Mm-hmm. That, that's my interpretation of it anyway. I may be wrong. But uh, uh, it, 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 it appeals to the wicked sense of humor of, of uh, people who have seen uh, too many uh, Phantom of the Operas. And, and, uh, you know, because it, 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 it really overdoes a lot of the oh, yeah. no, it's, it's... traditional Phantom uh, uh, things. Richard is, it was very good. Yeah. He knew what he was doing, mm-hmm. and thank God he didn't tell uh, Chuck Freeze because Chuck Freeze never would have allowed the picture to be made. <laughs> and, and I'm serious; he thought it was a real horror film. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned that uh, after that, and uh, you did Super Carrier, and then shortly after that, you you left the business and are in teaching now. But one of your last credits, uh, you were the first AD on Child's Play two. That's right, yeah. And I was just curious if you had any... Because that's actually, out of all the... Personally, it's just me speaking, that's my favorite of all the Child's Play movies. I really... I, I enjoy that one a great deal, especially the big finale in the uh, the toy manufacturing plant. I was just wondering what your memories are of that production and uh, why that ended up being sort of the last thing that you, you, you're credited for. It's the last thing I was accredited for because I was starting to get gray hair mm. and people didn't want to hire me anymore. And anyway, I was already teaching. Oh, okay. So I just switched, you know, professions. And I taught at UCLA for a while. And I taught at, U- I taught at USC and UCLA simultaneously. And the only thing that was painful about that was that I had to stop uh, between the two schools when I was driving uh, to change the uh, frame on my license plate, you know. <laughs> But as far as uh, you know, it being your last production, would you look back at Child's Play 2 as being a, uh, a fun one for you or at least an enjoyable one for you to kind of go out on? Yeah, not as much as I did Phantom of the Mall and not as much as uh, some of the others, Man in the Glass Booth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were others that were special. There was one, uh, Gideon's Trumpet. Mm. Wonderful piece, Henry Fonda. Oh, yeah. uh, but... Uh, uh, Child's Play 2 had problems, but they weren't anything that we could overcome. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were like 
eight puppets, I think. Yeah. And and in one, the face worked, but nothing else. Mm-hmm. In one, had a uh, a cord running down his leg and coming out the heel and through the floor. So that leg couldn't move, but the other leg could take one step. You see, so we could Mm -hmm. photograph him looking as if he was walking, but it was only for one step. Hmm. We also had a midget, Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, he was in a uh, Chucky outfit, but we could only do him from extreme long shot because it became perfectly obvious if you came close to him that he was taller than two feet. (laughs) And uh, uh, then there was another one where the arms moved. I mean, you know, and all of of those were shot against black backgrounds Mm -hmm. so they could mat them in anywhere. You know. Uh, And... uh, he, it, it was good. The, the director was a new director. I don't think he'd ever directed anything before, but he did an adequate job. And he certainly did. Uh, his job was certainly good enough to scare a whole lot of people because <laughs> people have asked me about that movie uh, quite often. You know. So, I, you know, as we wrap things up here, I guess the last question that I have for you is... You know, looking back at your career, which has been really amazing. I mean, you've had so many different types of projects and so many different types of genres. You've gotten to work with amazing people. You know, you've done a little bit of everything in terms of, you know, production managing and directing and producing. Are you overall, when, you, when you're able to look back, are you happy with your career? Do you think that uh, in the end that you've really done a lot and you're able to appreciate it now looking back? When I was a kid... My father taught me, somebody must have taught him, and I've taught my kids, that the best thing you can possibly do is to find something that is fun to do and makes you happy and learn how to make money at it. That's what I've done all my life. I love teaching. I love the movie industry. Uh, everything I'm doing now is, is just a pleasure, almost everything. But, uh, uh, yeah, I fulfilled that dream. Uh, I can't say I had a bad career. I loved it. I loved, I even loved working on the bad pictures. (laughs) And there were a few. Uh, You know, I had, the movie business is unique in that every picture is different. Mm -hmm. And every picture brings up different problems and consequently every picture is a learning process Mm -hmm. now for instance i did butch and sundance the early days and i learned a lot about the west the way it really was because this was a real story about these guys actually in the movie uh we used as a set uh a bank that butch and sundance had actually held up when they were robbing things Mm. And we used the the real bank that they robbed to rob it in the movie. Uh, (laughs) But I had a lot of fun with that, learned a lot about Westerns. I did one show at ABC called Judge D, 
and the haunted monastery that took place in China in 700 AD. Uh, I've done Future World. I've done, uh, you know, science fiction. I've done horror. And every time I've done a picture, I've always learned a whole lot of stuff. And that, to me, was wonderful. How are you going to find that with a guy who manufactures shoes? You know? Uh, I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. And I've enjoyed all the characters. Uh, where else are you going to... F I had a director once on a show that I did who cried. I told him, look, we have a problem, you know, with this particular scene. You wanted... Um, 25 extras and all we have in the budget for this assuming that we have to have extras for the other scenes as well uh, all we all we can give you is 20 the guy got down on the floor lay down on the floor and started pounding the floor with his fist and saying I told my agent I wouldn't like this show it's terrible look what you're doing to me the, the <laughs> producer was crying the producer won't let me have any extras I don't know what to do you know, and and it's wonderful because now I can tell the story you know <laughs> but uh, the characters some good some bad most good by, by a large by a large section most were good there you know can't complain about any of those uh, uh, there were a few temperaments and that's okay you learned how to either cope with it or or let the agent handle it you know it it, it was uh, I as I look back on it I couldn't have done any better man I loved it As we come to the end of the track here, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Mr. Stacy Weidlitz and Mr. Robert J. Coster for taking the time out of their schedules to discuss their memories of Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, as well as many other interesting genre films that they had a hand in over the years. I would also like to point out that Mr. Weidlitz was gracious enough and uh, patient enough to record his own audio for this interview at his studio there in Nashville, Tennessee. It was uh, really nice to be able to have robust and professional-sounding audio for this interview rather than having to do it over a Skype or Zoom connection or a telephone connection. And uh, he even went out of his way to purchase a special microphone to assist him in recording this, so I really much appreciate that. Uh, it was very generous of him, and I think uh, the results speak for themselves. Thank you very much, Stacy, for that. And also to Mr. Coster for allowing my sound recordist and producer and friend Edwin Samuelson to come over and uh, eat up a couple hours of his time in his home to discuss the uh, memories of Phantom of the Mall and the other films we discussed as well. I very much appreciate the generosity of all the people involved in these projects at all times. It is always a, a, a real distinct reminder to me that I'm very lucky to have a lot of great friends and a lot of very patient interviewees who go along with the uh, demands of putting these things together. So thank you to all of them once again, and thank you to uh, Ewan Kant and uh, Francesco Simeone over there at Aero Video, which is putting out this Phantom of the Mall Blu-ray. And I guess that's pretty much it for the moment. I would like to thank you all for listening, and I hope that you've enjoyed all the stories of Phantom of the Mall that you've heard on this track and the other interviews and commentaries on this Blu-ray. And for now, this is Michael Felsher with Redshirt Pictures signing off and saying we'll see you 
on the next track. Bye-bye. Terrible misunderstanding. You bursting! I have a lot of money, Eric. I have a lot of money. I'll make a cash settlement with you. Anything. Eric, we can work this out. I have, I have a lot of money, Eric. Eric, I'm really sorry. Look, I may have made some mistakes. I said some bad things. I'll eat my words. This place is going to blow any second. Get in here. Is there a panel in the mall?
Take a mind. Is there a panel in the mall? 